Hi, I'm David Corton. I'm a member of the Club of Rome, have an MBA and PhD degrees from the Stanford Business School, and I'm a former Harvard Business School professor. I've lived and worked 21 years in Ethiopia, Central America, Philippines, and Indonesia on a mission to end global poverty. Moved back to the United States to New York City in 1992 and set up my office between Union Square or on Union Square between Wall Street and Madison Avenue to devote the rest of my life to educating the world to the devastation I observed being wrought against Earth and the world's people by the World Bank, the International Monetary Fund, capitalism, Wall Street, and transnational corporations. I subsequently wrote the international bestsellers when corporations rule the world and the great turning from empire to earth community. My other books include The Post-Corporate World, Life After Capitalism, and Change the Story, Change the Future, A Living Economy for a Living Earth. My current work centers on advancing a global transition to an ecological civilization for a 21st century world. We will be discussing these topics and more in the days ahead. Welcome back to part two of this delicious, binge-worthy episode of Curiosity Bites. I'm here with my guest uh, on this delicious episode of Curiosity Bites, David Corton. He has an MBA and a PhD degrees from Stanford Business School. He's a best-selling author of numerous books, including the international bestseller, when corporations rule the world. This is a guy who has impacted and been part of the world's economics and really on the ground in places like um, Ethiopia, Asia, Indonesia, the Philippines, Asia, I mean, South America. This is a guy who really sort of rolled up his sleeves and found out what was really going on. And we've been talking about in the first section about how oftentimes the economic powers, whether those are organizations or whether they're corporations, may well, it is possible that many of them have very good intentions, but those good intentions, well, they really cause a lot of problems. And one of the things that we were saying at the very end was that um, David had said in, an, in a previous conversation that, and in one of his articles that we're going to touch on in a moment, that... Uh, he believes that we're on the path to self-extinction. We talked about how people really can't cope with the idea of that, and so we bury our head in the sands. And he says we need to go where we've never been. So, David, where do we, you know, okay, we need to go where we've never been, but again, I don't want to put people into this sense of hopelessness. Where do we need to go? Because you said it's all going on inside your uh, noggins. So where do we need to go? Well, the incredible thing in my mind is that the answer to that question is so simple. Okay, good. We need to start with understanding who and what we are. And basically, we are living beings mm -hmm. born of and nurtured by a living earth. Wow. You didn't mention money. I thought we were financial beings. Right. I thought we got rich by making money. Right. You know, here's where you, you come to the fact that our whole misadventure is by our misunderstanding 
of the relationship between money and life. Mm -hmm. And we have come to organize as, as modern societies totally around the goal of, of making money as though somehow that is going to improve our lives. And forgetting the most obvious fact that money is nothing but a number that has no meaning outside of the human mind. Right. There's nothing in nature can even recognize it. And so the idea that we organize our whole economy, our whole way of being around making money is, is true insanity. So we just have to wake up and, you know, I've never heard anybody dispute this. Mm -hmm. um, wake up to the fact that, that we are living beings. And then the deeper level, the deeper level of understanding, which is a little less obvious, but it is obvious once you get into it, that life exists only in diverse communities that self-organized and cre to create and maintain the conditions essential to their own existence. Say that again, because that's, that's important. I want people to get that. Yeah. Life exists. And once you understand it, it can only exist in diverse communities that self-organized to create and maintain the conditions essential to their own existence. Now that, you know, the clearest demonstration of that is Earth. Mm -hmm. Now, you know, with all our telescopes and so forth, you know, the, the scientists now tell us, you know, there's billions of galaxies and, you know, trillions mm -hmm. and trillions of, of, of planets and stars and so forth. And we obviously haven't found all of them. No. Of all the planets that we've so far identified, this one, this one we call Earth, is the only one that has conditions on the surface essential to life as we know it in terms of the air, the water, the fertile soils, the, the, the climate, et cetera, et cetera. The only one. Now, why? Mm -hmm. Well, again, as we look back at what science tells us, it was through the evolution of life on this planet. And as life evolved, it actually created these conditions. Mm -hmm. And, you know, this then gets back to the obvious. If we look around it, um, you know, it, it is the living systems of, of Earth, the living organisms in relationship to its geological structures that together they are constantly self-organizing to maintain the fertility of our soils, the cleanliness of our water, uh, the stability of our climate, et cetera. And we're in this deep trouble because our whole economy, the way we organize our economy to make money totally ignores this fundamental aspect of our nature. And you know, that's the most incredible thing. How could we as a presumably intelligent species, <laughs> presumably, <laughs> you know, get our understanding of ourselves, right, 
and thereby our relationships to one another and our relationships to earth and all the beings in the living earth community how can we get that so wrong and i i i so get your point and i'm trying to move myself into a listener's uh thinking who goes okay yeah i agree with you i believe in taking care of the planet and all the rest of it but hey dude this planet is run on money and if i if we you know what do we do do we wave the magic wand and money goes away that's not happening the world bank is not going to let that happen the corporations are not going to let that happen and government which is run by money is not going to let that happen and if we do that who the hell is going to take care of this the old the sick the infirmed whatever it is and the whole system falls apart that's likely to be the argument right absolutely um and, and I'm talking to an economist. To it. We, we, have, we have organized ourselves so much around money that the whole system basically depends on money. Um, but here's where you know, the coronavirus may, in a sense, be a gift. Mm -hmm. um, because it's totally disrupted. Yep. Our, our, our ways of relating. And so the question is, do we really want to go back to what we had before? Or is this a time to move to something very different? And, you know, while we have a few people who have, um, you know, really been uh, doing extremely well, I mean, this is one of the most extraordinary things in my mind that you know, over the, um, over the past six months during the epidemic, the 15 richest U.S. billionaires gained $401 billion in assets. Wow. $401 billion in assets for the top, how many, 15? The top 15 richest U.S. billionaires. Right. Crazy. So that's $27 billion each. Um, you know, that's more than either you or I make in a lifetime. Really? <laughs> I thought you made that on the weekend. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, and, and how many billion does one guy need? I mean, <laughs> yeah. Um, the top 15 billionaires made in six months in the pandemic, they made how much? $401 billion. Wow. Um, now, of course, you know, what is that? It's just a bunch of numbers. I mean, the, of course, you know, and part of this was the Federal Reserve just, you know, printing money, but uh, you're not, not feeding it in to where it would help people sustain their, uh, their, their, daily, their daily diet or feed their children uh, or, or pay the rent but basically to propping up stock prices so we wouldn't have a, um, you know, the, the billionaires' assets wouldn't depreciate. But again, now we come back to, all right, so now what are you saying? We have to be a socialist world and we have to take all that money and strip it away from the billionaires and, you know, come the revolution, brother. <laughs> you, know, uh, you know, you and I are old enough to remember those things. You know, I, I, I am old enough to remember revolutions and invariably 
revolutions get some crazy bugger out of power and replace them with another crazy bugger. I mean, you know, right. you know, we've seen that uh, across the world in many places. I'm old enough to remember having a Che Guevara t-shirt without knowing anything about what Che Guevara stood for, but it was a cool look, you know, <laughs> and, you know, and, you know, we've, you and I are old enough to remember places, you know, like um, Cambodia and Pol Pot and, and yep. you know, and Idi Amin and all these people who rose up um, as a, you know, as a transformation to a, to a society, much in the way that Rodrigo has, has rose, risen up in the Philippines, uh, Bolsonaro in Brazil, uh, and Trump in America, um, actually propped up by people that they have no relation to, um, but as their hero, because they're going to, I mean, it's a, it's a powerful, powerful leverage lever is you're poor and I want to help you. And those bastards don't want to help you. And if you don't believe me, look at our history. And they go, you're right. Okay, let's get our pitchforks and go into the street. Yeah, very complicated. Um, right. You know, f f well, there's, there's so many dimensions to this, but it, it, one of the deepest levels is that we have for the past 5,000 years, organized societies under dominator hierarchies. Right. So you've got a few people on the top and then you've got all the rest down on the bottom. Mm -hmm. And it's about organizing societies around the concentration of power so that all of essentially the benefits of, yep. of, of real wealth, control of the land and knowledge and everything else uh, resides in that tiny group at the top. And what we actually have to move toward is a, a system of not total equality necessarily, but far greater equality than we have now. We also, this gets into another aspect of life that I think we ought to, we need to bring into here. Okay. Our most, our most intimate example of a living organism is our own body. Yes. And, you know, though we never think about it, uh, we all know the reality is that each of our bodies is comprised of tens of trillions of living cells, individual mm -hmm. living decision-making cells. Yeah. And I exist as a conscious living being with agency because of the ability of these tens of trillions of cells to continuously self-organize and regenerate to create this vessel of my consciousness and instrument of my agency. Mm -hmm. Wow. It's pretty well, amazing. Who orders them to do that? Nobody. Well, it must be in our mind. No, the mind controls the nervous system, which controls my, you know, what I do with my hands and legs and how I move around and what I, what I 
how I move my vocal cords to communicate with you. But the brain does not control the communication and the decision-making relationships between these cells. How do they do it? Well, the truth is we scarcely know, but it's pretty evident that somehow they do it through their constant communications with each other and organizing together through our organs and so forth to make this all work. And when they stop doing that, we're dead. Yep. Wow. It's, it's a fascinating piece that you're bringing in there because uh, it's a conversation I've brought up a lot in my work, which is when I talk about building a culture or building a community is understanding the importance of communication inside of that and open communication inside of that is because, and I use the reference of the body because for our bodies to be healthy, cells have to communicate with other cells. And that uh, epigenetics shows us that as soon as a cell stops communicating with other cells, the other cells surround it and push it out. Yes. Right? They suffocate it and they remove it from the system. Um, but we, so the interesting thing about humans as a external from our cell groups is that we are tribal and we love to other and then we want to push the others out. And the problem with that is it also suffocates those who are in. Because if you're going to be in, you can't say things like that, David. You were, you were in economics and you can't talk about these kinds of things. You've got to feed into the GDP model of, of economics and uh, making the, the poor people rich. You've got to make sure that the uh, stock market stays up, all those kinds of things. And there's always this othering. So the challenge, I get where you're coming from, but I really want to be sort of a little more aggressive about yeah. pushing back on this idea, not because I disagree with it, but because I'm trying to help people to say, what is the solution? Because people are tribal, first of all, with their families, then with their local communities and religions and nationalities and all the other stuff. And we know we need to move to a more global and even universal way of thinking and being. But at the base level, we're amygdala-driven tribal beings who are one rock away from killing somebody else. Um, and we like to think we're very sophisticated, but we're really not very sophisticated. And we may be, uh, as, as uh, stated in The Matrix, we may be the, the greatest virus the planet's ever known. Well, you're talking about the response of, of the most primitive uh, element of your brain. Yes. Um, but this is, I mean, this is part of what we've got to recognize is that we are the ultimate choice-making species. Yes. I mean, we can choose to be insular tribal in the way you describe it, or we can choose to to organize as a, as a global community. Now, here's the other thing that you have to recognize about life. When we talk about life organizing as a community, mm -hmm. it organizes as many communities. Yes. They're all interrelated. But if you, if you look at how they relate together syn synergistically, it is through a process of holism Mm -hmm. holistic structure rather than a hierarchical structure. I agree. 
So in a sense, they're organizing from the bottom up. And as we think about human organization, yes, we need a United Nations. We need, we need those higher level structures. But their primary purpose needs to be not to try to control what each of us does at the local level, but rather support us each in doing that which is essential to our own well-being and that of the community of which we are a part and the whole community of life of which we are a part. And I, I, I agree. Are those organizations doing that? Do you believe in, for instance, the UN? Do you think they're, not what their intention, not what their intent is, but do you think that they're actually able to do anything like that? Because a lot of people are losing faith, right? Yeah, well, I'm, I'm not much of a, I, I used to be a fan of the UN until I, I realized that the, you know, the UN is captive to its governments, particularly captive to the US government which mm -hmm. is basically one of the most rogue governments in the world, despite all that we tell ourselves and the fact yeah. that I went off into the world believing, you know, <laughs> we are, <laughs> we are God's answer to save the world. Um, well, it turns out that's not true. Um, mm -hmm. And of course it turns out that we have a long history um, of it not being true. Of course, going back to slavery and they, uh, our theft of, of the land from the indigenous peoples to this continent. Um, but we still are, are beings with the capacity to make totally different choices. And the fact is that most people, at least in my experience, and, and certainly my experience around the world, um, most people are honest. Yeah. And they're caring. And one of the truly extraordinary things I realized is if, if you really want help, go to a poor person. Um, most of them are much more likely to help you. Um, and, you know, when we used to go out with our children and visit in a village, uh, you know, we, we had to sort of caution our our children that people are so generous and we're giving them things and you've got to learn to not, uh, you know, not take advantage of that because these folks are giving up tremendous things to, uh, to, to, to be that sharing and that, and that generous. And that's, that's sort of their impulse. That's one of my great lessons from traveling was, and I remember coming back and talking about this and saying, we don't understand what wealth is. I live in a first world country. I love first world luxury, just like most of us. But I don't think we understand what wealth is. And I remember being in Fiji 23 years ago and staying at a nice resort and meeting a guy on the beach who was a big Fijian ex-rugby player, monstrous guy. And, you know, he was trying to do something. And I said, what's going on? And he goes, oh, I got pain in my shoulder. And I said, oh, okay, I can help you with that. And he's like, really? And I was like, yeah. You know, and he's with his Fijian accent. I said, yeah, I can help you with that. And he goes, okay. And the guy was built like a brick shit house. I mean, he was just, <laughs> Christ. He was probably 50 then. So he hadn't been on teams, you know, in 20 years, but he was still 
thick. But he had this knot, and I knew how to get it out. And so I was helping him, and he said he wanted to invite my wife and my wife and I over to his hut, right, to his mm -hmm. home, which was a hut, for dinner. Now, my wife is Fijian, and so, you know, this is her greatest joy to go and have local food, which was cassava and boiled fish. That's yeah. what it is, with, with garlic and chilies. And wow. that's exactly what it was. It was boiled cassava and fish that was cooked on the fire with, with the chilies, you know, and we sat on, on, on little straw mats inside of his hut with little tiny bugs and possibly cockroaches climbing around. And it was delicious. And by that, I don't just mean the food. I mean, that level of sharing of somebody who, who had literally gone out with a spear and caught that fish and, and, and cut some, pulled up some cassava to eat with us, like that level of generosity. And meanwhile, we other people on the street corner, and we refuse to give them eye contact because they're lowly. But, but I think that, that even that's a, uh, an oversimplification. I think it's what we started out with, David. If I look at them, they're real. If they look at them, it's my problem. So I don't want to look at them. And that's what I keep banging up against in this conversation is I don't know how to get the world. And maybe you don't either. Maybe neither of us do yet. But how do we get the world to look into the eyes of this situation and say, oh, it's real. Just yeah. as the guy hanging out on my wealthy street on the corner who has, is poor and is in dirty clothes and is begging for money. If I look at him, I can see the disproportionate distance between my wealthy street and him. And if I look at this economic uh, machine, which is what it is, that is driving GDP, which has got nothing to do with poor people, but I'm in the machine. Yes. How do we get people to look at the machine? How do we get people to look at the machine you're part of that you enjoy is actually chewing up your life and ultimately your home being Gaia, being planet Earth. That's what I really want to, like, I know you're a wise man. I want to hear, how do we screw people's head on this? Yeah. Again, the answer is simple, but it's not simple. Simple, but not necessarily easy. You know, we are so accustomed to individualizing. Mm -hmm. And that includes the idea that, well, if, if you got a problem, um, you know, you, you think the poor need help, then do something, help them, you know, give them a handout. But the issue is not handouts. The issue is the system <laughs> that concentrates the wealth and excludes most of the people. And changing the system, even though it exists in a sense only in our heads, is, is not something that any of us can do individually. It has to be through collective action. So it starts with changing the story by which we understand the world, which is why 
I got so enthusiastic about having this conversation with you because you are a master communicator of Thank new stories know. to the world. Uh, this is God's work <laughs> at this at this point in the human experience. Um, and this is why I talk about it in terms of a civilizational shift or transformation. Yeah. It's not a marginal adjustment. It is a fundamental shift in our whole understanding of who we are, what our possibilities are, and what that means for how we live together. And it, of course, includes recognizing the sources of our real satisfaction. Mm -hmm. You know, and you, you can go back to, you know, the simple Maslow's hierarchy, which, uh, yep. you know, I was tracked it too long ago, but I hardly understood its, its full significance. That, yes, we have, we have foundational physical needs, and if those are not met, yeah. uh, we're in real trouble, and we absolutely have to focus on those physical needs. And, of course, we've organized the society currently that the only way I can meet my physical needs is if I have money. Yes, and and so that's why it's partly under, necessary to understand how people used to live without money. Uh, that this dependence on money again is our own creation, um, and it's 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 partly a function of of, of a very defective economics. But um, we have to start with the recognition that no, we're not financial beings. Um, you know, money is worthless on a dead earth. There's nothing to buy on a dead earth. Yeah. Um, so if we're living beings, how does that mean we organize? You know, one of my wife's absolute passions is uh, we live next door to uh, a lovely church that has a, um, a community garden. Mm -hmm. And so they, you know, they they give members of the community a, a, a little tiny plot, you know, well, I've got yep. a little tiny plot over there. The greatest joy, I think, in her life is, you know, every couple of days she goes over and is tending that plot, growing vegetables and flowers. And, you know, it is it is an expression of her humanity, not that not that we need this, that we're going to starve if, if her vegetables don't grow. No. But it is part of her experiencing her humanity. Yes. Of, of, of being a nurturing being, of cultivating and supporting other life and other living beings. Same thing. Same. And in a, uh, a money-driven world, in many ways we have we have as a society as a globe forgotten about our humanity and gordon gecko is still the king you remember gordon gecko remember that yeah. movie oh, yeah, wall I street right? I and, you know greed is good and that disparagement between those two spaces of absolute poverty and absolute wealth is something we've we've desperately got to do something about but i'm i still yeah i don't know how to get people to that thinking of community 
um, I, I've often said that the only way to do it is to um, is to pick people up and put them somewhere they're not used to because to get them over their own cognitive bias. So if we pick everybody up and say, okay, you're going to be in this little village in Africa or South America or wherever it is, and you're going to be with these people, eat, sleep, live, breathe with them for a couple of weeks, suddenly your world is changed. You know, you have a different experience. Uh, we had Frank White on here um, who wrote The Overview Effect and a couple of astronauts as well on the same show. Mm -hmm. uh, and the same thing and saying, you know, that once you've been above the planet and you see there are no borders and you realize that we are a global community, um, but it's that part that needs to happen. It's that shift in consciousness. And every astronaut that I've spoken to, and I've spoken to a few now, says the same thing, it, you're never the same. And some of them are radically different because of it. Mm -hmm. um, and I got to know Edgar Mitchell, who studied ions because of that, um, before he died many, many years ago when we met. Same thing, that, that sense of global community. And now Frank White was telling me that uh, in, in his interview um, that um, I was talking to him on last Wednesday as well, and he was saying that VR is becoming of course, more and more accessible and giving people the opportunity to have the overview effect in VR. So putting on your virtual reality glasses and yeah. feeling like you are looking down at the earth. And I said, how real is it? And he said, well, there's a little test they do in it. And they, in the test, they have a VR lens on and you walk out on a little plank and below you is about a thousand foot drop off the top of a building, right? But you're in yeah. VR. Oh, yeah. <laughs> it's a virtual reality. And he said, you know you're in VR. You know you're in the, in the room. You know there's a full floor. You, you know all those things are around you, but people don't step off that plank. And yeah. that's why he believes giving people an overview effect in virtual reality may be the mental and maybe even the neurological rewiring of the brain to start thinking in a global community way. It's an interesting way of us looking at these things. Yes. And I think- We were already at the end of part two, we're already at the end of our second section of this show with my, my wonderful guest, David Coden. Uh, this is an amazing conversation. I hope you're gonna stay with us for the third part of the show uh, because we're going into looking at his article from the International Science Council. We want to look at uh, coronavirus, what it is. We need to look at the limits of growth in our planet. And we also need to look at something called the Club of Rome. Let's make sure we get to all those things in the next couple of parts. We'll see you in just a few moments. Make sure you stay tuned, get your pen, get your paper, get your beverage. We'll be back.